Let go your earthly tether. Enter the void. Empty and become wind. Empty and embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 113 of Embrace the Void, where it feels like we just released 112 yesterday. Um, I guess time blurs when you're doing weekly content. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week joins me to dive further into the wonders of Kant and expressivism, um, two things that I foolishly thought didn't go together. Before we get to that, I just want to say thanks to the patrons of the show. I love having these chats, and I can afford to devote the time to doing them, and more importantly, pay Brian to edit um, because of your support. It's If you're a consistent listener of the show um, and find that you're getting value out of the experience, please do consider joining us on patreon.com slash embrace the void. You know, like $4 a month is basically a rounding error in today's world, and it gets you early episodes and bonus book club content. Um, Of course, if you can't afford to support, please still listen and share and review. It helps us so much to grow our community. Okay, enough soft sell. Let's get to the good stuff. My guest this week is Florence Backus, a grad student at the Tufts Terminal Master's Program and a impressive consumer of great philosophical works. Florence, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you um, taking part in my continued attempts to have literally everyone from Philosophy Twitter on so that we can have fun conversations. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and we've got a lot of fun things um, to talk about. We'll we'll inevitably end up talking about ethics, since that's the thing that I always want to talk about. But mm-hmm. before we get there, um, I noticed you and I are both, well, I, I assume you'll soon be a completed member of a terminal master's program. Mm-hmm. Um, and for folks who are not in philosophy, um, they might not know that that's not necessarily the most sort of typical. Usually, I think folks go to sort of combination master's PhD programs. So I'm curious uh, what your experience has been like in the terminal master's um, side of things. Do you feel like it was, it's been a, a good experience, one that you'd recommend to certain kinds of people yeah, interested so, in philosophy? Um, yeah, so a lot of um, ordinary PhD programs do have like master's programs um, that are sort of like not their main thing, that they just sometimes accept people as master's students. But yeah, if you want to go into philosophy academia like I do, then Mm -hmm. um, basically you have to get a PhD. Now, ordinarily, people will go straight from like undergrad to a PhD program in philosophy, but sometimes they might do a terminal master's first. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm doing. And that's especially good for people who are like transitioning from another field. Like when I was in my undergrad, I studied um, math and physics. 
Um, and so, yeah, I only minored in philosophy, and so I wasn't really yet qualified mm. to apply to philosophy PhDs. Yeah, so I, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm getting a master's first. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I had a similar experience where I, I went to undergrad <laughs> initially for theater and then found out about philosophy. And so I was sort of playing catch up, I felt like, um, and it ended up working out to do the, the terminal master's as a way to get more experience before moving on to try to get a PhD. Um, so... What made you, I'm curious, what, what made you make the shift from, if yeah. I may ask, from math and physics to philosophy? Yeah, everyone asks me that. Um, and I always, yeah, I still haven't come up with a good answer. Um, so, okay. I mean, basically, yeah, since I was like 14 years old, I really wanted to be a mathematician, right? So I like already wanted to go into academia. Um, so yeah, I was in like undergrad mm -hmm. majoring in math. And then, um, I mean, I was into philosophy in high school, but then I didn't get really back into it until my junior year when I took a philosophy class or some intro class for, you know, humanities credit that you have to get. And then that got me sucked way back into it. Um, mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I just started taking all of the philosophy classes I could there. And yeah. And then, I mean, eventually sort of like independent of yeah. anything having to do with philosophy, I just sort of lost excitement about mathematics um, and sort of decided that it wasn't really what I wanted to go into. And then, um, yeah, eventually I was able to decide to switch to philosophy and, so far, I'm very glad with the decision I've made. Um, well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. I feel very torn sometimes as an intro teacher. Like, mm -hmm. I love getting people excited about philosophy, but I worry about getting people excited about philosophy because yeah, it's such a financial futures are you going to ruin? Um, right, exactly. Am I like, you know, <laughs> sentencing all of these people to lives of suffering <laughs> yeah. in some way? Right. Um, so I'm glad to hear that. Uh, what are your sort of main interests and kind of allegiances or biases within the philosophical world? Um, so my main interests are, I mean, they're still pretty broad and I need to narrow stuff down. Um, but mainly I'm into ethics, epistemology and philosophy of language, especially interested in mm -hmm. issues regarding normativity and like foundational questions about that. So like especially metaethics and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, and the good stuff. as for allegiances, uh -huh. yeah, anybody who's seen my Twitter will know I'm a big fan of Kant's moral theory. So as far as no, so you're not no, you're not standing con ironically or unironically. Okay. I mean, I understand. I like Kant. I, I mean, it's not my first person to go to, but I'm not saying yeah. he's dumb. Um, you know. Yeah, and I also do have some sympathies for him with respect to like metaphysics and epistemology. Um, yeah, outside of ethics, in terms of epistemology, yeah, I'm interested in sort of like the. 21st century sorts of issues that deal with like the semantics of knowledge descriptions and yeah, yeah sort of that hyper analytic type stuff oh uh, i mean I, I i wanted you to talk a little bit about it because you, i think you told yeah. me that you were recently completing a paper and i like to pretend that i understand more than just like basic correspondence theory so mm -hmm. like <laughs> hit me with your thesis of this paper that you worked on recently and i'll pretend to understand yeah yeah so um i'm writing a paper in epistemology. I mean, it's for my writing sample. Um, yeah, it was a term paper and I'm developing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's about, mm -hmm. yeah, the semantics of knowledge descriptions. So I'm arguing against this sort, this theory called subject-sensitive invariantism, which is a hypothesis about how knowledge descriptions work, like in our everyday discourse about knowledge. Um, so that theory is basically a rival mm -hmm. to another theory called contextualism. And um, put in a sentence, what contextualism says is that the standard to which a knowledge description is held um, varies according to the sort of context in which the sentence is uttered. Um, uh, Wait, so so whether or not we think that someone has knowledge, is that is that the, the thing that's varying according to circumstances? Yeah, and like, well, more so like the condition or like 
sort of the standard of evidence that the person you're talking about has to mm-hmm. have in order to be able to have knowledge. Um, sort of like the evidential okay. threshold they have to pass um, varies from, you know, depending on what sort of situation you're in when you're considering the question of whether they have knowledge. So, for example, um, mm-hmm. you know, often they, often in the literature, people will bring up like cases where standard or like stakes are really high. And so that raises the epistemic standards, as they say. So, for example, in like my everyday you know, just how we mm-hmm. speak mm-hmm. in everyday life. Um, you know, people might say that I know something based on very little evidence, just maybe because I glanced outside and kind of saw some rain, people might say, I know it's raining or something like that. But if like mm-hmm. stakes are super high and like something terrible mm-hmm. is going to happen, if like I act under the assumption that it's raining and I'm wrong, then, you know, you'll judge me to a higher standard. You'll require me to have more evidence in order to know something. And now it can't just, it, it seems like it can't just be the case that, um, you're mm-hmm. always held to these higher standards. And um, because if that were true, sort of like skepticism would result because, you know, we never meet like a maximally high standard. There's always like some unlikely possibilities I can't rule out, you know? Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So what do you, where do you step in on this? Yeah. So contextualism is a thesis about how these standards vary. And they say it varies according to like properties of the context you're in. When you consider the question of whether someone has knowledge Whereas subject-sensitive invariantism says that it says that it doesn't vary according to the context you're in when you're talking about knowledge. Rather, it varies according to the sort of situation the person you're talking about is in, right? So, for example, if we think hmm. about um, the cases I just described, like the standards you're held to, how much evidence you have to have in order to know something, it's not going to depend on like, you know, how strict I need the evidence to be when I'm talking about knowledge. Rather, it'll be based on, like, the circumstances that the person is in. Oh, I just accidentally sort of, like, repeated what I just said. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just trying to make sure I, I pin down what the thesis is that's sort of what yeah. you think is the factor rather than your circumstance. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, let's say I'm talking about Bob, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I'm considering the question of whether Bob knows that it's raining. So, according to the contextualist, the amount of evidence that Bob needs in order to know that it's raining will depend on like the sorts of alternatives that are salient to me or like perhaps like what I believe his practical interests are and like what his stakes are. Whereas according to the proponent of subject sensitive invariantism, it will depend on Bob's Mm -hmm. circumstances, nothing to do with my circumstances. So for example, how much is at stake for Bob? What alternatives are, you know, relevant to Bob? Uh Um, Yeah. So, I mean, the upshot of that distinction is this. According to contextualism, it's possible for me to say, like, um, you know, Bob knows it's raining, and for somebody else at the same time to say Bob doesn't know it's raining, and for us both to be right. Right? Because we're in different contexts of utterance. So it's sort of like words like oh, here, right? I can, I can say Bob is here, and someone else can say Bob is not here. I see, I see. And we can mm-hmm. both be right because here... Um, means a different thing based on where we are. Whereas according to subject-sensitive invariantism, that can't happen. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it just depends on, like, the standard to which Bob's um, belief is held in order to be considered knowledge. It just depends on Bob's circumstances. So it doesn't matter who's talking about it. I see. So if you were, like, trying to throw some shade at Bob casually on Twitter or something, it wouldn't make any sort of difference that you were making the comments in that context as to whether or not... Uh, it was true, it would be entirely dependent on the factors about Bob himself. Is that sort of getting at the right idea? Um, Yeah, basically. Yeah, so if I'm just talking about him and maybe Mm -hmm. I might say something like, oh, Bob, you know, doesn't know that he's not in a brain in a vat or something. 
like me bringing up that possibility isn't mm-hmm. going to change the fact of whether Bob knows. Um, but, you know, maybe the contextualist will say like, oh, once that possibility okay. is salient, you're subject to a higher standard and you do have to roll that out before you can know anything. Interesting. Okay. I think I understood some of that. Yeah, I think I'm, I, I some of those words sound, sound familiar to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I apologize. It's, it's a bit technical and hard to like boil down in a reasonable amount of time. No, I mean, I'll be very, very honest. Like I'm the kind of philosopher who likes ethics because it's, it's, it's the easiest. Yeah. I feel it's the hardest, but like <laughs> it's in the, some sense, like it feels like it's the easiest. Like I don't, I don't have to pretend to be a really good analytic philosopher in order to do <laughs> yeah. ethics. Um, but no, thank you for, for doing that. And I appreciate it. And now that I feel like we've, we've had our, mm-hmm. our epistemic broccoli a little bit, maybe we can <laughs> um, move on to discussion of normativity yes. where I, I feel like I can be a better interlocutor <laughs> for you. Um, so talk to me about Kant and your love of Kant and your recent readings of Kant. Um, uh, what would you say are the parts of his ethics that like attract you the most? And, and like, what are you picking up on recently that you think is really um, interesting? I mean, so I think the main thing that I like about Kant's ethical theory is how much it focuses on the foundational questions of how um, normativity works and how these rules can possibly apply to us. Because, I mean, you know, let's think about why ethics is hard. If I try to come mm-hmm. up with some like proposal for what, um, you know, the moral law is like, or just any example of a sort of categorical imperative, like a you know mm-hmm. statement about how to act that's supposed to apply to everybody. It seems like it's basically impossible for me to prove that it actually applies to you, that you're actually obligated to um, obey it, right? Because, I mean, so it's like Hume noticed, you can't, it seems like you can't derive an is or mm-hmm. an ought from an is. Um, and so like, you know, whether that rule has authority over you is going to depend on whether you already have like a desire to follow it. Um, mm-hmm. So I like Kant because he really focuses on giving an account of like how there can be a categorical imperative, a rule that really does have authority over everyone. And so he actually purports to be able to demonstrate, um, or I mean, he purports to be able to say what the moral law is, what the Mm -hmm. categorical imperative is, and show why it applies to you. And basically he does that um, in two steps. First, he shows that morality is in a very crucial respect connected with freedom right so the way he puts it is he has the rest of what he calls the reciprocity thesis which states that a free will and a will under the moral law are one mm-hmm. and the same mm-hmm. um which means and so to sort of unpack that insofar as we consider ourselves to be free we have to take ourselves to mm-hmm. be bound by the moral law we have to take it to apply to us it just is the law that applies to you know free rational beings and then the second part is showing that we actually do have to take ourselves to be free, or at least that's how he approaches things in the groundwork. He sort of modifies mm-hmm. that approach later. But yeah, the basic idea is that like our reason and our deliberation is such that we have to take ourselves to be the sorts of beings um, to whom like the idea of freedom and like the moral law apply. Yeah. That seems to be like the harder of the two premises to make. Like I think um, to, mm-hmm. to break down the first one a little bit more for folks like, Kant's argument, as I understand it, is something along the lines of, you know, if you look at animals who can't reason and so can't adhere to a law by understanding the law itself, but merely by being sort of determined by basic natural laws, that to us strikes us as like the epitome of not free. Mm -hmm. And so the most free could be someone who understands the moral law and chooses to act based on its their understanding of it, that that would pull them away from their sort of animalistic 
natured. Is that is that how you? Yeah, that's read him good. As well? um, so actually, at this point, it might even be good not to even talk in terms of morality, but just in terms of practical reason, like what's mm-hmm. rational to do and what's irrational to do. Right, because um, he's going to try to make yeah. ethics universal by saying everyone exactly. is rational and has to be yeah. rational. And so, yeah. you know, we're free because our actions aren't just determined according to natural necessity. It's not like we just get an impulse and then we have to act on it. You know, as Korsgaard puts it, we have reflective mm-hmm. distance between ourselves and our inclinations or impulses to act. Um, which means we can take a step back from them and ask whether they really are a good reason to act. Um, so we're free because our actions mm-hmm. aren't just sufficiently determined by our impulses, but rather they're um, determined in part by our impulses, but also in conjunction with reason and the principles of practical reason. And that'll end up being the moral mm-hmm. law. Like once we know what the principles of practical reason are, we'll be licensed in calling it the moral law. So let me ask you then, do you think he successfully makes the case that like, um, fundamentally, uh, there are categorical imperatives that everyone everyone has to follow in virtue of their rationality. I mean, because clearly he's gonna he has to concede that, like in the real world, people don't always act rationally mm-hmm. and don't always follow the moral law. So, right, so, how do you feel like he squares that circle? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, one thing we have to be careful about is that there are sort of like two senses in which you can use the word rational, um, which. I don't know, mm-hmm. I'll call like a descriptive sense and a normative sense, or perhaps mm-hmm. as like a way to categorize beings versus as a term, term of appraisal. Um, so we can use rational as like a term of appraisal, like you're really rational, you always do the right and responsible thing. Whereas some people fail to be rational, you know, they might act erratically or without thinking or something. Um, in contrast, we can mm-hmm. use rational in a more descriptive sense to just describe a type of being Um, one who doesn't just, well, the way Kant puts it is one who acts according to their representation of a law. In other words, they have this reflective distance between themselves and these impulses, Mm -hmm. and they can sort of like step back and ask themselves like what their reasons are for acting and act or not based on that. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I are both rational beings, even if we, you know, fail to be like rational in the appraisal sense, we're still like the sorts of beings um, say, to whom this talk about deliberation and reflection applies. Yeah, so when Kant's saying that, like, the moral law is the law for rational beings, and it, like, um, it applies to us insofar as we think of ourselves as rational beings, we should be using the word rational in the more descriptive sense, um, just because we're reflective, self-conscious creatures, or, or at least we have to take ourselves to be such, the moral law applies to us. What do you think about that claim we have to take ourselves to be such? Like, do you do you agree that there's something fundamentally irrational about acting immorally? Like, I, I put this to my class as sort of like the Joker problem. Is there anything really mm-hmm. irrational about someone who just fundamentally wants to watch the world burn? Yeah, so, yeah, that's um a good question. So whether or not you have to actually take the moral law to apply to you, Mm-hmm. that'll come after the question of whether morality is equivalent to freedom. So for the purposes of addressing your question, let's assume that that's been established. Okay. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we buy the Kantian thesis mm-hmm. of what morality ha- morality has to be like, and now we're asking, you know, can, do I have to take it to apply to me? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, and then the issue is, thing, is like, okay, well, do we have to take ourselves to be free? And, you know, at first, that seems like this huge metaphysical problem that you have to deal with, like, you know, my experience of agency can't prove that I'm free, right? That's some deep metaphysical thing. You know, how could we possibly just know that from, like, intuiting it, right? Mm -hmm. 
that's not what Kant is trying mm-hmm. to show. Rather, what he um, shows is that we have to take ourselves to be free for practical purposes. So the way he puts it is we act under the idea of freedom and therefore really are free in a practical respect. And um, I mean, what Christine Korsgaard takes Kant to be saying there is that it would kind of just not make sense for me to like think about how to act and for me to like not take myself to be a free being who can like choose between their reasons and decide which ones are good to act on. Right. Like I can't just tell myself like, you know, Oh, I'm just determined by my inclinations. And so Mm. I'll just do whatever I do. Right. Like (laughs) (laughs) as, as a no free will person, I feel a little attacked here. Um, I'm curious. Do you think that people can genuinely not like by themselves to be not free agents? Um, I mean, maybe in like a sort of intellectual sense, um, they can, hmm. you know, believe that. But like when it actually gets down to acting, you know, when you choose, um, you know, which type of, or I don't know, when you choose whether to do one thing or the other, it's not like you're just going to say like, okay, body, uh, do your thing, pick one. Um, no, you're going to be like, okay, what should I do? Um, given all the evidence I have before me, which one should I pick? So at the very least, like if, if you're just taking yourself to be totally determined by your impulses, you would just say like, all right, I'm just waiting for uh, mm-hmm. stuff to happen. But well, but I could be more, I could be determined in a more sophisticated way where like which thing I end up deciding to choose to do, even from a reflective place um, could be the result of things beyond my control. Right. Right. But like insofar as you act, you have to like take yourself to be making the choice, like in the moment. Mm hmm. Like, you, you sort of, like, can't use that. Okay. Maybe, you know, in some metaphysical sense, that, that'll be true. But in the moment, you can't, like, take that as an excuse to, like, not think of yourself as free, right? Because it, it just wouldn't make sense to even deliberate um, under that assumption. Yeah, you know, when you're deliberating, for the purposes of deliberating, you just hmm. have to think of yourself as free um, in the sense that, you know, you can decide what to do. Yeah, and that's... Okay, I, I, I certainly understand that as a as a perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I I think I maybe have intuitions the other way so far, but this was not something that had prepped you to to force <laughs> yeah. you to defend uh, Constance on free will. We just sort of stumbled into this. So um, I think you're I think you're making a good point that like this is this is how how it's understood from this kind of and I, I do think that like um, there is a there there is probably something to this suggestion that psychologically no matter how much you you know you meditate or whatever yourself into seeing yourself as a non-entity as non-free or something like that that you maybe in the moment still do truly act that way um so so are there let me ask you mm-hmm. this um about kantian ethics um do you feel like there are like very pernicious misconceptions about ethics you know when i teach my intro to ethics students i like mm-hmm. tell them the problems of you know Kant says you can never lie and Kant says you can you know people can't ever um take their own mm-hmm. lives so euthanasia is off the table and like do, do you do you feel like there are serious problems with Kantianism or like, do you feel like a lot of this stuff is just like sort of straw man um, challenges? Well, I think the at, like at base, the theory is true. And I think a lot of what he derives from it are true, but I'm not going to like say that he was always correct in applying it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm sure. not necessarily going to commit myself to like having the same conclusions about lying and, you know, suicide and so on. Um, although, yeah, that, although I would just view that as a failure mm-hmm. of like, being able to perfectly apply his own theory because like who can um and you know obviously he had some 
very troubling biases um and <laughs> a few yeah. um so like what would your pushback for example be on the the no lying thing how would you like fix Kant's Kantianism for him I mean, so that like he can lie properly uh course guard and tamar shapiro have written on this but okay i mean his the essay where he talks about that on a supposed right to lie uh like due to benevolent motives or whatever um it's mm-hmm. really hard for me to make heads or tails of that paper just because of how it interacts like with his theory of right. So yeah, I wouldn't really want to speak on that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. No problem. I think that's fair. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a good thing to know that like, no matter how much you get into a philosopher or learn yeah. philosophy, there will still be points at which you say, I don't understand this. And it's better to say, I don't yeah. understand this than to like pretend to understand mm-hmm. it. And then, so great or yeah, yeah as for like yeah, go ahead. misconceptions of kantian ethics or yeah you wanted me to speak on that or yeah absolutely yeah um i don't know like i think there are two in particular that came to mind uh so one of them is all the talk about like acting from duty there's this idea that like khan has this picture of a moral agent being very cold not you know motivated by sort of earthly motivations like care for others or their own happiness or whatever because they just have to act from duty mm-hmm. if you you know, don't have these motivations acting solely from duty, then, you know, your actions are tainted and, you know, they're all merely in accordance with duty, right? Um, and then, so mm-hmm. that's something of a misconception, um, a, a pretty big one, I think, because... So, yeah, I mean... Well, so how then do you, how do you make sense of, like, the passages where he talks about, like, the person who acts from interest, even if the interest is to be moral, doesn't fully commit a moral action until they act from, like a torpid place of not interest. Well, so course garden makes this point really nicely. Um, mm-hmm. So the objects of normative evaluation, or I, I should say moral evaluation are maxims, which are basically principles for how to act. They're principles of the form, you know, do this sort of thing in this sort of situation for this end or this goal. Um, now the crucial thing there is that the maxim is already going to have built in, the end in question, right? So that end might be my own happiness or, you mm-hmm. know, care for others or something like that. Um, and with regards mm-hmm. to your duty, the categorical imperative is a principle for selecting maxims, for selecting principles of the form, you know, act in such and such a way for such and such a reason. So it can simultaneously be the case that I'm acting with the end of, say, making someone happy, and I'm choosing to do that act in order to make someone happy out of duty does that make sense so there, so there's sort of two senses in which um like my action can be mm-hmm. have something as a reason as we usually speak um and so basically what i want to get at is that mm-hmm. having um being motivated by say making somebody else happy or something like that is not incompatible with acting from duty Um, saying that we have to act from duty is simply just to say that we shouldn't just do the right things for Mm -hmm. the wrong reasons. Um, so it's a sort of common sense point, uh, like consider the same Mm -hmm. sort of situation when it comes to sort of epistemic rationality issues of what I should believe. If I were to just have some like wild random beliefs, um, you know, we would call like, Mm -hmm. we would call me irrational. Now, if I ended up having the correct belief, um, you mm-hmm. know, just by sheer luck, you know, maybe I believe the right thing in that situation, but I didn't do it for the right reasons. I wasn't motivated by, you know, whatever the correct epistemic guidelines are, you know, and 
so it seems like there's something lacking about, um, you know, my mm -hmm. belief, even though I ended up believing the right thing. Now, Constra saying the same thing about ethics and in the groundwork discusses this sort of issue of motivation um, or what people commonly cite. Um, he's just making mm -hmm. this sort of like common sense point that like, even if you do the right thing um, and perhaps for the right end, if you're only doing the right thing for the right end, because like, yeah. I don't know, you happen to want to or something and not, um, and you know, duty or your moral obligation doesn't enter into the equation at any point, then, you know, yeah, it's great that you arrived upon um, mm -hmm. the right thing, but there's still something lacking about what you're doing. Um, but yeah, so the crucial point here is that, you know, what Kant is saying, it's not contradicting any sort of like, um, obvious claims are what your motivations are like when you act for duty because mm -hmm. yeah you know if I help a stranger you know somebody less fortunate than me because it's my duty that doesn't also mean that I don't like actually care about their happiness and their happiness is why I'm doing this right because um, where morality comes in is it's what's telling me to help them out for the sake of their happiness right yeah, I, I I definitely agree with this interpretation, and like I think it's good. I think mm -hmm. you did a great job, sort of clarifying. And this is, I think, one of those points where um, Kant is at his sort of most virtue theorist, in mm -hmm. the sense that like he's trying to unpack the idea of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do as the right reason, rather than from a place of pleasure. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right that this seems entirely compatible, you know, despite his sort of very strong language in yeah. certain parts. I think you're right that, like, it's reasonable to interpret this as saying, no, you know, you can you can enjoy doing the right thing. It just the enjoyment can't be the right. reason for doing mm -hmm. it. So maybe shifting gears for a tiny bit, right? Not not a ton, because, as you say, Kant cares so much about um, meta-ethics, but from my understanding, at least from um, uh, following you on Twitter very <laughs> thoroughly, like, I get the impression that you're not a moral realist. Is that correct? Yes. that um, Yeah, you could say that. I mean, I guess... Even though I think I, Kant is a moral realist, I think we, we could agree, right? I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, let me get into that. Um, yeah, do it. Well, I mean, Let's so go. <laughs> one easy sense in which I'm not a moral realist is like my sympathies for expressivism. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, okay. <laughs> uh -huh. As I understand, <clears throat> but then there's like a more um, important, this is a more Kant interpretive point to get at. I basically endorse by and large Christine Korsgaard's interpretation of Kant. And I think that's sort of a correct moral theory in its own right. And like, a can you give like a little bit for folks? Him. What? Like for folks who aren't familiar with Korsgaard, like what would you say is the Korsgaard interpretation of Kant? Yeah, yeah. Like what are the important things? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to that and like how it's like okay. sort of not realist. Um, <laughs> so basically she distinguishes between two sorts of realism, which she calls substantive realism and procedural realism. Mm -hmm. According to procedural realism, um, as she defines the term, that's just the view that moral questions have right and wrong answers that are like standpoint independent and all that. Um, mm -hmm. And then substantive realism is what's generally called moral realism. So that's the view of G.E. Moore, Rush for Landau, that sort of thing, which is a more metaphysically robust view, according to which, yeah, moral questions do have these objective answers. But also they're true because of these robust moral features of the world, the world, mm -hmm. these you know moral facts. Mm -hmm. um, right. And then so that's my view. I agree. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so Korsgaard <laughs> takes Kant to be a real a moral realist only in this weaker sense. Um, now, meta-ethically speaking, how does she support Kant's ethics? Well, basically, she thinks that our um, 
the moral law comes from the structure of agency, uh, to put it briefly. And mm -hmm. so basically how she puts it is that agency is just sort of like of a certain type that taking yourself to be an agent um, requires taking yourself to be under the moral law. Um, that's just a sort of a metaphor that follows from like sort of metaphysical facts about like what action is and what makes an action an action instead of just like a reflex. Um, and then so that sort of gets back mm -hmm. to how, what we were talking about earlier. But anyway, um, yeah. So mm -hmm. yeah. another piece of jargon that's often also used here is is constructivism, which basically says that moral facts are not determined by these sorts of external facts about the world, but rather they are um, due to sort of their constraints imposed upon the process of moral reasoning and like moral deliberation um, as opposed to something from outside um being something or well no yeah so like constructivism is is this sort of the, the idea that that there are no moral facts but we can come together and agree upon them in some kind of sufficiently robust way right yeah basically that like what deliberation is and what agency is sort of puts constraints upon what the answers to those questions can be and those constraints give us the solution to the moral questions so like mm -hmm. she draws this idea from Rawls who um yeah, the way she puts it is, I mean, she likes saying that um, constructivism involves defining things as like the solution to a problem. So Rawls has the concept conception distinction. There's um, a concept of justice and then a conception of justice. And the, and the concept of justice is just supposed to be whatever solves this interpersonal problem we face about co coming up with like publicly acceptable ways to, you know, live mm -hmm. with each other. Whereas the conception of justice is a specific proposal mm -hmm. as to like what the solution to that problem can be. Um, right. And so that's going to be a more substantive, uh, you know, notion of justice. Mm -hmm. And then she takes, she basically pulls a similar move in ethics. Um, she defines morality as the solution to a problem, namely the problem of what to do as self-conscious creatures. We are just faced with this decision. We can't escape. We've got to figure out what to do. I mean, it's not like you can do something to stop being an agent because, well, you know, you'd have mm -hmm. to decide to do that first and deliberate on it. So it's sort of this inescapable problem, right? Mm -hmm. So you're sympathetic to this kind of constructivist approach. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, so you can sort of see how this is sort of way metaphysically weaker than, you know, the substantive realism of, you know, Rush for Landau or something. Um, and so that's why some people mm -hmm. might categorize it as an anti-realist view. Um so can I ask at least a little bit, what, what turns you off to the Rush Schaefer-Landau kind of view of yeah, things? Yeah, so basically um, my main concern is I just don't like intuitionism as a method of doing philosophy. Um, <laughs> I Yeah, so I <laughs> okay, think in any enough. case where like <laughs> there might plausibly be disagreement about certain issues, um, in order for us to really accept a philosophical position, we have to take there to be sort of a neutral um proof of that position that could be acceptable mm. to all parties in the dispute interesting um i yeah i mean that's an interesting way to put that because i i i, I sympathize with the intuitionists and maybe I, I sometimes worry that i'm a lazy intuitionist but i do i, I am critical mm -hmm. of the notion that like for a claim to be true there has to be a neutral account of it that w would be persuasive or acceptable to everyone in some kind of way yeah, or I mean, everyone in, insofar as they're like rational and stuff. Yeah, well, I guess I feel like that, you know, insofar as they're rational and stuff, you're going to build in there certain kinds of 
ethical assumptions that will be needed to like right right it's the same way that some like like you mentioned Rawls there and like i think Rawls makes it puts in a heroic effort to try to come up with a sort of constructivist approach to things but ultimately i think one one plausible knock on Rawls is he smuggles in his own liberal assumptions into his kind of original position theory and i my, my challenge my issue with constructivism has always been that it does seem like it's 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 pretty hard to get it off the ground without bringing some of that in somehow yeah yeah well i mean i won't defend Rawls's like theory of justice um mm-hmm. all i'm really depending sure. on here is sort of like the structure of his justification i mean so i guess a mm-hmm. better way to put like why i'm not attracted to like robust realism is just that like i've never seen it been like satisfactorily like demonstrated or proven that like we really do have these substantive mm-hmm. um these sorts of like substantive constraints imposed upon us from outside in the way substantive realists envision. So they seem to always r- rely on intuition in a sort of way that I feel like is a bit too strong. Do, do you feel like there really are ethical theories that avoid relying on intuitions in those kind of ways? Or do they just like, like do they like diffuse the problem by relying on everyone's intuitions? I, I mean, you know, we can, we could debate like how far intuitions go. Like, is it really even possible to justify a logical mm-hmm. truth without intuition or something? But uh, it's fair. But yeah, I think say, you know, Kant's moral theory gives a pretty satisfactory account of why the moral law applies mm-hmm. to us. Um, and yeah. And I mean, that's not something I can really justify ahead of time, except just by like showing mm-hmm. yeah, no, fair like, what the argument if, is. Yeah. I mean, that, that. That, that's sort of an answer but, to my question, certainly yeah. in the sense that like you, you feel like Kantian mm-hmm. ethics minimizes the use of intuitions at least mm-hmm. um fair enough yeah maybe something like that. maybe maybe a little bit or yeah i i think that's good cool so let's um, let's bring another bit of jargon in here at least um i've uh, you, you at one point on twitter corrected me for my use of emotivism <laughs> as a term yeah, no. calling it a slur on par with turfs i suppose <laughs> so no, I didn't make any comparison to turfs, but um. no, I thought it was implicit in your shade reference throwing there. Yeah, no, um, that was, yeah I was joking. I mean, emotivism yeah. is sort of like a primitive form of expressivism and like, but it, it sort of like mm-hmm. steals the limelight in a lot of these discussions from people on the outside. So when people hear about expressivism, they think like, oh, air, like, you know, murder is wrong. Just mean, it's just like saying boo murder. Um, and it sort of doesn't take morality seriously. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had yeah, we had Liam so, on a little while ago, and he tried to rehabilitate my because, like, I, I I had that exact experience mm-hmm. in college where I read Air and I read his attempts to sort of <laughs> divide moral language into the emotive side and the not and the factual side. Um, and like, you know, I can see where he's coming from out of that that Humean tradition, like we were talking about earlier. Of you know, you need to have a preference, and the preference thing can't be proven. So that's got to be like the mm-hmm. emotional side of things so maybe help us maybe a little bit um understand what you see as the key insights of expressivism that you want to incorporate into your kantian constructivism Mm -hmm. yeah so most broadly i would take expressivism to be a view which takes um moral judgments to be expressing different sorts of mental states than what we ordinarily call factual beliefs about the world um and then that can of course be cashed out in many ways Mm -hmm. like um and yeah, there can be many objections to that way of putting it. So a lot of ways of defining it are rough and ready. Um, so, and I mean, one way of catching mm-hmm. that out is to say that normative beliefs or moral beliefs are mental states more similar to actions or like arriving upon a decision and mm-hmm. deliberation 
than they are to beliefs. And that's the way Gibbard puts it. Um, yeah, you, you said you mentioned that you'd have been he, reading some Gibbard. So uh, yeah, bring that in as well. Yes, as of as of somewhat recently. I, I mean, so basically, here's Gibbard's approach is he um, like, in thinking how to live one of his more recent works, um, he basically takes normative claims to be um, expressing the same sort of mental state as sort of arriving upon a decision, right? So when I say like, mm-hmm. you know, if I say something like theft is wrong, that's sort of like me saying, you know, to do, right? Like me just like deciding upon theft if I were like deliberating in that situation. So it's sort of like this hypothetical decision. Like if I mm. were in that sort of situation, then, you know, I, it's not like a propositional claim about like what I would do, but rather it's just like arriving upon the decision that is the sort of mental state that's being captured by normative language. Um, does that make sense? So, so let me... I'm not entirely sure. So it, it doesn't seem like you'd want to say that like someone deciding X is moral is equivalent with them deciding to do X or something like that, right? No. Or is so, that the actual theory? Okay. So yeah, somebody, so sort of like, so sort of like what's happening is, um, or sort of like what's going on is if that person were to say X is permissible, that would express the same sort of thing as actually arriving upon the decision to do X. Even if they don't actually right? do it in that situation. Now, of course, okay. they, they might be wrong in mm-hmm. what they think about as moral, but that would just translate into saying they're wrong in thinking that X is the thing to do. And what would make them wrong in that situation on the expressivist model if they're not realists? Um, well, so that's just a you know a first order okay. like normative okay. ethical sure. question. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so just like expressivism doesn't tell you anything about like what sorts of moral claims are going to be true or false, you would have to just get into ethics. And so, you know, I, of uh-huh. course, am going to like, just bring out arguments for Kantianism. Um, so, so I guess what you're saying, let me see if I have an understanding. What you're saying is that like, when I make a moral judgment, and I say that, you know, torturing puppies is immoral, mm-hmm. um, what I'm what I'm doing is an action that's roughly equivalent to if I had chosen to refrain from torturing puppies in some sort of situation, even if it were like I in some for some per, you know perverse reasons I was like holding this view while also being forced to engage in this kind of behavior or something. It's not like I actually have to refrain or engage in an activity in the moment. You're just saying that like the act of judgment making is much more like yeah. the the impetus to action than it is the forming of a belief. Is that is that getting closer? Yeah, something like that. So I mean, when it comes to like situations that you're not actually in, um, I mean the way Gibbard puts it is that these normative judgments are sort of like hypothetical decisions. Like mm-hmm. I mean it's not a claim of the form if I were in this situation, then I would do this, because that's just a statement about what I'm doing, not like a statement about what to do. Rather, it, um, mm-hmm. it's something like arriving upon the decision to do this thing were I to be in this situation. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't... I'm not entirely sure that I agree, but I'm also like, I'm trying to think about if I were to adopt this as an account of of the kind of belief formation that is going on, or, or the kind of mental behavior that is going on here, it still feels to me like as a realist that I would want to say that there are facts of the matter for which kinds of those expressive judgment actions I should or shouldn't engage in, um, and that those facts yeah. of the matter are... 
stance independent in some sorry you would say that they are the procedural version of moral realism perhaps but not the more robust schaefer landau version right. is that i mean fair so just to like motivate gibbard gibbard's mm-hmm. thing like one, one mm-hmm. interesting point he makes is like okay let's spot that there are these like robust moral facts then you know sort of like the picture you have of agency mm-hmm. is people like okay look at the world to find these facts and then you know those are sort of considerations we do we use in order to determine an action and then we use those moral considerations to decide that the action in question is the thing to do right Mm -hmm. and so what he wants to do is to just bypass um everything but deciding on the thing to do right so he wants to just directly define Mm -hmm. moral terms in terms of you know arriving upon a certain course of action and deliberation um and so i really like this view because it allows reason to actually be practical um so i mean there's this point sort of implicit in con and that course guard talks about explicitly a lot that according to the robust view of Mm -hmm. um ethics practical reason can't really be practical they basically just sort of try to theoretize or the robust realists sort of just try to theoretize ethics and make it into um an issue of how to describe the world right they just try to assimilate moral claims into the descriptive claims but um but that, you know, comes at a cost, hmm. right? It, if you do that, then it doesn't, it's not clear how these moral facts can directly mm-hmm. bear on our actions. Sure, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the human motivational right. kind of problem. I And, and like, I, I don't know, as a moral realist, I feel like I want to say that these, like, thick evaluative facts are sort of more complicated than just like i don't i don't feel like all evaluative claims can be reduced down to descriptive claims in a simple kind of way so i don't know maybe i just want to have have my cake and eat it too and that's always gonna be my problem well well, if you're a robust realist then in a sense you think the evaluative claims already are sort of like descriptive claims even if you're not like a moral naturalist you think that they're sort of like Mm -hmm. describing moral features of the world right yeah, but those moral features have in them sort of ought claims built into them as well as is claims, I guess, is the way that yeah, I... Yeah, yeah, and so you're, you I view it like moral claims as yeah. sort of like describing these features of the world that have ought claims built into them, and, you know, perhaps non-natural mm-hmm. features, um, if you're of the Mormorian variety. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but either way, that seems to assimilate, like moral discourse into descriptive discourse mm-hmm. and then at the cost of asking us or at the cost of leaving us with the question of like how can you know these independent facts really as course guard puts it get their grip on us you know have authority over us um you know so it seems like we're kind mm-hmm. of owed some explanation for why we have to follow these rules um yeah and then so i like gibbard because he basically just gives us a way to have practical reason just be directly practical it's just you know, so intimately connected with the question of what to do um, that, um, yeah, that we don't have this like weird Mm -hmm. two-stage process where like first we have to decide that, you know, there's this moral feature of the world. And then, you know, if we're rational, decide that that moral feature bears on our action. And then, you know, we know that the moral action is the thing to do. Um, Rather, practical reasoning just directly results in Mm -hmm. decisions of how to act. That's interesting. I hadn't... Because I'm sympathetic to a lot of what you're describing, and like to me, um, mm-hmm. sort of an account of moral realism doesn't necessitate rejecting some of the the valuable things that you're talking about there. But it may just be that like I'm just not familiar with the arguments that would compel someone to feel like they have to reject those things, 
or or you know it's it's so very tricky because i feel like all these different theories they're trying to give us a conceptual framework for understanding these really complex processes and often they're trying to mm-hmm. converge on a variety of well let's say intuitions or you know things that we want them to get right and they often diverge on other things and and then at the same time i sometimes feel like a lot of them run together and that they end up sort of being similar theories in some kind of yeah. ways at the ground level do you, do you feel like that's a problem with like when you when you read either normative ethics or meta ethics where you like you know you stare at these things long enough that you go cross-eyed about whether these are actually different yeah. things or just people like describing the same things with slightly yeah, synonymous words? Yeah, I think that's words? a really common thought, especially in discussions about expressivism, because like how do we even like differentiate non-cognitivism from cognitivism? I mean, so at first, you know, if you read Ayer, you see, I mean, you'll see that like oh, if you're an expressivist, then you think that moral statements are not truth valuable they just express emotions but then you know if you're like a deflationist about truth you could say like mm-hmm. well yeah you know in a sense moral statements are truth apt even though i'm an expressivist because saying like theft is wrong is true is just the same thing as saying theft is wrong so they are truth valuable right and then you might say like oh well moral mm-hmm. statements express mm-hmm. something more like desires not beliefs but then you know you can just say like oh well you know, John believes theft is wrong because he's in the mental state that could be appropriately expressed by an utterance of theft is wrong, right? So, I mean, so yeah, there's these like ordinary language problems with mm-hmm. like that create difficulties with actually defining expressivism. So I totally get where that sort of problem comes from. But then when I like, when I get really in the grips of this sort of problem, like, oh my God, is there any difference between expressivism and like robust realism? I feel like I can take a step back and just see that they have radically different metaphysical pictures for like how more like moral discourses Mm -hmm. or like how action should be determined by the world. Um, So according to the moral realist, it's just a matter of discovering these moral features of the world that, you know, inexplicably Mm -hmm. have their grasp on us that we know through like intuition or something. Whereas for the expressivist, um, no, when people say something's moral, they're just in a way, you know, making linguistic their decision that that action is like the thing to do the thing you have to do uh, yeah and i think i think that's true in some cases i do think that like when some people say i think this thing is moral they really are you know saying i think this is the thing that that people ought to do and there may not be much more to it than that and i guess you know, then I want to, like, make distinctions between people who are right and wrong, and I wonder how we can do it in those cases, and can we really make a distinction without either appealing to moral facts or just being, like, nakedly elitist in some kind of other way? So I, I go around and around on this stuff, too. But I, I like, I think your case is great. I think it's very compelling and, and is much better than the airs that I read in undergrad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So... Great. We're, we're getting close to the end here, unfortunately. Okay. I want to do the realism, Randy realism lightning round a little okay. bit here. But, like, you're you're such a prolific reader. I mean, I like, and I say that at least, I mean, relative to me, <laughs> you certainly are. I'm, I'm curious, first of all, do you actually, like, enjoy reading all of this stuff? Do you find some of it, like, terrible like the rest of us do? Like or, like, do you find a perverse pleasure in, like, reading, like, like any, <laughs> even the worst of philosophy gives you a kind of... Um, inverted pleasure of some sort no it absolutely does not i often um yeah i have this problem of like (laughs) never sort of like getting really into a literature because i um you know just keep finding new things that i'm like sympathetic to and i want to just keep reading about that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. um 
that results in me not getting enough depth. I'm sympathetic to that, yeah. too. I understand. Yeah. Um, are there, like, things that, like, you've come across that you feel would be very accessible to folks who don't have a lot of experience in the, the philosophical yeah. realm? Who would you feel like anyone can pick um, up and like read? Like, related to what we've been discussing? Or just even more broadly yeah. than that, like, stuff that you think that people would really enjoy that, is, that isn't necessarily my personal hobby yeah. horses? Well, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite um, books on philosophy is... Um, Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained, which is written for a general audience. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and it's pretty accessible. Um, and mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's a large book. It's like 500 pages long and it might be daunting, but it's very easy to read. Um, so I would highly recommend that. And I don't know if, if the listener is interested in like what I've been saying about like Kant and Korsgaard and like their approach to ethics, I would recommend her book, uh, Korsgaard's book, um, Self-Constitution. Um, I think that's a relatively easy read. Mm -hmm. I, I did tend to find course card very readable certainly yeah. more readable than Kant, right yeah, yeah yeah i wouldn't i would not recommend just like picking up Kant. <laughs> no or <laughs> it's very heavy and, and physically yeah um <laughs> yeah i i think that's that makes a lot of sense um well so so thank you for making those suggestions mm -hmm. um is there anything else you want to leave folks with before i i force <laughs> you into the uh lightning round uh, no, not that i can think of Okay, are you are you ready for the lightning round then? So you know you know the rules here, just in case for folks new listeners, right? Um, I'm going to mm -hmm. give you a list of things because philosophers never have to talk about all these things at once. Um, and your job is to tell me um, realist, real okay. or anti-real, right? Real or not real, um, with regard to all of these <laughs> things. You don't have to define the term. So later on philosophy <laughs> Twitter, you can avoid oh, any complaints. Yeah, I hope this doesn't get me canceled. Um, okay. Yeah. Are, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's gonna be, be great nobody one. ever actually gets canceled we all just get pretend canceled um you're gonna be the one all right i believe in you real on all things yeah. you got this uh <laughs> are you ready is your is your yeah. readiness real it real it's real it real okay the external world real okay colors real phenomenal consciousness fake am i allowed to say fake or i have to say not real you're totally allowed to say fake, okay. especially in that tone of voice. Okay. So, so qualia? Fake. <laughs> okay. Double fake, I assume, in this context. Uh, free will? Real. In a practical sense. I'm Set. Yeah. No, 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 no. You just got to control yourself. Uh, selves? Real. In a practical sense. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. You're still great. Um, personal identity? Real. Okay. Genders? uh real races real <laughs> i love the noises that <laughs> philosophers make when asking these questions that's like the most like i have people on just to do this part where um all right so <laughs> species real okay uh morality um real <laughs> i hesitate <laughs> no no <laughs> yeah Suck on that, everyone who just listened to the last 25 minutes and is now confused. Uh, rights. Real. A priori knowledge. Real. A posteriori knowledge. Real. Propositional attitudes. Real. Hard real. <laughs> Ideas. Real. Modalities. Real. <laughs> Uh, we're moving into the metaphysics. I see. Um, uh, okay. Gods, fake. Okay, <laughs> easy one. Okay. Society. <laughs> Wait, excuse me. 
society. Real. We live in one, so. Okay, there you go. Excellent. Uh, numbers. Real. Abstract entities. Real. Fictional characters. Fake. Holes. Real. <laughs> Chairs. Real. Ooh, bold. Uh, sandwiches. Um, real. Mm-hmm. Science. Real. Natural laws. Oh god. Um, real. <laughs> uh, and beauty. Fake. Beautifully done. Did... <laughs> <laughs> okay. You survived. How do you feel? Oh god. Now everyone's gonna think that I'm weird about metaphysics. <laughs> Oh God! Can I? Yeah, can you I like said, preface this? You didn't this? go one um, way or the other. You had mixed views. What? Sorry. Yeah, God. Um, I mean, regarding ontological questions, God, I can't help but explain myself. <laughs> Re- regarding ontological questions, I sympathize with the view of Amy Thomason. So I believe in like numbers and stuff, so, but not in a spooky way. I'll just say that. And you believe in chairs, but not in a spooky way, apparently. Yeah, that that's a hard one, but yes. All right, I think you're maybe one of the first people we've had who's been been pro chairs. So I appreciate really? you taking yeah. that taking that stance. I just love um, neurological sums. That's that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> I I you know I I am pleased that you are so willing to be openly canceled this way. Yeah. Oh um, God. And I think it's great. <laughs> oh, Florence, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a a wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I love this. Discussion. Yeah. Where can folks find you and your work? I don't. I'm pretty new to this game. I don't have okay. work yet. Um, Fair but enough. yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Moral Law Within. <laughs> such a nerdy type <laughs> i love it i have so much respect that's that's really great yeah. you are you are a jewel your will shines <laughs> like a jewel thank you i appreciate yeah, it yeah thank you i'm so glad that that ad wasn't taken <laughs> no I, I i can't imagine I, i'm shocked that it wasn't i feel like that's such a Same, yeah such an obvious one um it is yeah you know but good on you for grabbing it and like <laughs> you deserve full credit for that um so so thank you so much this has been wonderful yeah thank you i yeah this has been wonderful all right, catch you on the Twitters. Yeah. Thank you so much to all our listeners and especially our patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our 20-tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you, as always, to our $40 top tier, clearly supports us deeply, Dave Maslich. You all are heroes. We really couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on uh, whatever podcast app you use. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And support us financially if you can at patreon.com slash embrace the void. We really couldn't do this without you because remember, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 